Just give you a little bit of a, a peek into the strange mind of Ken Chipchase. <clears throat> Have you ever thought about how since energy can neither be created nor destroyed, and that all living things are made up of millions of millions of cells that, that constitute our bodies and they're, they're consuming nutrients and there's, there's all this production, all these cycles going on, that it is very likely that there is some cell, some nutrient in your body, even in this very moment, that was once a nutrient in some other living being at some other point in time in history. Yeah, I know, it's a strange thought, I know. But think about this for a moment. Just, just go with me on this little thought experiment. What happens when you die? You, your body decomposes. Those nutrients go back into the ground. Those, those nutrients feed plant life that grows, that animals consume, or perhaps we consume directly. And so there's, there's a whole cycle of life, right? I'm not trying to go down that road. But there is a bit, there is a literal cycle that goes on with just the nutrients and the cells and all that, that process that goes on. And so you have this. Our cell, our, our bodies are made up of cells that very likely are being fed from nutrients that were once a part of some other living being at some point in history. Again, just a little straight, a snapshot into the mind of Ken Chipchase as I just think about strange things sometimes, but I am going somewhere with this. Think further what happens in when, you know, we think about, okay, in, in normal Phases of life, perhaps, we think about the ways that we could give someone a, a proper burial or the way that we historically would think about that. Someone dies, uh, their body is embalmed, it's placed into a casket, it's lowered into the ground. But what about the different people that have had different experiences with, uh, I say experiences, they're dead, they don't know, um, but their body, they may, they, maybe they were cremated and they have their ashes and people might spread their ashes in different places I've heard different people doing that, like spreading their ashes in a place that that person really loved, that person called home, things like that. Or what about individuals that perhaps drowned in the sea and their, their, their bodies went down into the ocean and they just decomposed in the ocean? Or individuals who were devoured by wild beasts? Okay, I know we're just a bit morbid thoughts here this morning, but think about what happens to their bodies. And have you ever thought about... You know, we believe in something called the rapture of the church, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Well, if their bodies are not in a grave someplace and they're just scattered about or have been consumed or decomposed in various forms, how does that work? How, how does it work that the dead in Christ rise first and that, that God resurrects these, these bodies to meet the Lord in the air and all of these things? It, it, it makes sense for us, for we who are alive and remain, to be caught up together to be with the Lord in the air. But what about the dead in Christ? How does that work? Questions like this, they're, they're, they, for me... They're interesting to think about. <laughs> uh, they can be fun to speculate about, to think about these things. But so often that the, the conclusion that we must come to is just we shrug our shoulders and we conclude, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that God is big enough to handle it, right? God, God is big enough to handle these things. This is not something that, that needs to be something that we fret about and worry about. Man, I just, I don't know how something like this can happen. God is all-powerful. He can handle it, even if that means that He is spontaneously making new cells and bringing bodies together in a unique way. He's God. He's got it, all right? He can handle it. 
But sometimes questions like those can be raised up by skeptics of the faith, skeptics of those who, and they can be stumbling blocks to people as they think about different doctrines and different theologies. Recently, there is a bit of a minor dust-up in the Christian Twitter sphere because there was a pastor, he posted a video where he was arguing that the flood of Noah's day was likely a local flood and not a global flood. So, we've got all these Christians all stirred up as they're arguing about whether or not he's got a point or whether or not, no, the Bible really teaches a global flood and all these things. Well, one point of his argumentation was that in order to believe in a global flood, you have to supply extra miracles to the story that aren't in the text. So, if you think about, okay, yeah, God brought all the animals to the ark, but if it's a global flood, you have to think about all the animals that are around the entire globe. How did they cross the ocean? How did they, how did they come to this one location? How did, you, how did all these things happen? And I say, well, yeah, God can do all that stuff, but those miracles aren't in the text. So, how do we, how do we think about all of these things? How could just eight people care for that many animals? How did the waters really recede if it was water high enough to fill the entire earth and the highest mountain? How could those waters actually drain away all of these questions that are raised? And my response to many of those questions has always been something along the lines of, you know, I already believe in a God who's powerful enough to literally create the universe out of nothing. Pretty sure He can figure the rest out. (laughs) If this is what the Bible says that God did, if it required more miracles than what is explicitly laid out in Scripture, I'm okay believing that. (laughs) The Bible says this is what happened. God's big enough. God's powerful enough. He's able to part the Red Sea. He's able to confuse language. He's able to, to, to bring the dead to life. He's able to do all of these wonderful things. I'm sure he could figure out a global flood. And I would say, again, that's something that's similar to the mechanics of, of the rapture. How does that work? What does that look like? Well, I don't know, but God is powerful enough. He's big enough. He can handle it. I already believe that He created the world out of nothing. If He needs to do one more miracle in the rapture, so be it. But this is what the Bible says that God will do, and so we receive that and we believe that by faith. And such a response, I would argue, is not anti-intellectual. It, it is not a cop-out of trying to think about how things work. It's simply faith and trust in the God who is able to do all things. Nothing is too difficult for Him. It's faith in the sheer magnitude of the power of God, something that must be embraced. Well, it is such faith that is lacking in the lives of the Sadducees in our text today. We're going to be back in the book of Mark chapter 12. If you have not turned there already, Mark chapter 12, we'll be picking things up in verse 18. But a group of Sadducees, they're going to approach Jesus and they're going to ask Him a question about the resurrection. How, there's a particular quandary that we have, this dilemma that we have, and it's, it's due to their own lack of understanding of the Scriptures. It's due to their own lack of faith in the power of God that leads them to have this struggle, and Jesus is going to call them out, and He's going to say, no, 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 you are badly mistaken. So, let's pick up our text. Let's look at Mark chapter 12. Let's begin with verse 18. Sadducees came to Him who say there is no resurrection, and they asked Him a question saying, "'Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, 
the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Well, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. The second took her and died, leaving no offspring, and the third likewise. And the seventh left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died also. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason that you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. as we consider this text and, and what Mark has in front of us today, just want to remind us, perhaps refresh our memory on a few things, or maybe if we didn't know these things, we'll learn them for the first time. Well, who are the Sadducees? Who are these individuals? This is the only time in the Gospel of Mark where the Sadducees show up. Every other time, the religious leaders are spoken of. There's different groups. There's Pharisees, there's scribes, elders, all these different religious leaders. Well, here, we have the Sadducees, the only time they show up, and it's, it's for a particular reason that, that Mark singles them out right here. And Mark reminds us that these are a group of individuals that do not believe in any form of a resurrection from the dead. They believe that when you die, that's it, you're done. There's, there's no resurrection, there's no bodily resurrection. The Sadducees, they were the biggest rivals to the Pharisees in the world of, of just the religious politicking as they're kind of jockeying for position, jockeying for influence with the people. They would have their theological debates between each other, and the Pharisees did believe in a resurrection, and the Sadducees did not, and that was a, a major source of contention between these two parties. They, they fought over this frequently. And they would also fight about various other matters concerning the law. And in the book of Acts, we also learn that the Sadducees not only did not believe in re the resurrection, they also did not believe in the concept of angels. So in, in a sense, they were very materialistic individuals. They only really believed in the physical material world. They didn't have as much belief in as much of the spiritual world as the Pharisees would have believed. And as far as the Old Testament was concerned, they may have seen value in several of the books of the Old Testament, but their authority was the books of Moses. They did not embrace the prophets or the writings or the historical books as Scripture. They only embraced the first five books, the Pentateuch, the Torah. That was what they held to be authoritative. Well, these individuals, much like the Herodians in the previous section, they they are not allies of the Pharisees, they are enemies of the Pharisees, and yet they have a common enemy in Jesus Christ. And so now they come to Jesus and they come asking a question. And this is a little bit of a different tactic than the Herodians brought before. The Herodians, they were trying to trap Jesus, right? Their trap was, hey, we give him this either-or scenario, and either way he goes, we've got him. Because if he goes this way, the people aren't going to like that. And if he goes this other way, well, then the a government's not going to like that, and he'll be put into custody. So we got him either way. Here, the tactic is a little bit different. Here, it's a theological question and the implications of, of how the theology works itself out 
in the resurrection. Here, they're trying to to put Jesus into a position where it's difficult to articulate an answer, and so he's going to lose credibility in the sight of the people because, oh, hey, maybe Jesus isn't as smart as we thought he was. Maybe, Maybe he's not the teacher that we think him to be. So they're trying to get him to lose credibility in the sight of the people. Again, Mark notes how these Sadducees, they already don't believe in a resurrection. And so what, what they're doing here by posing this hypothetical question, they're not trying to like, Jesus, you know, we're, we're trying to figure this out about how this works. And can you just teach us on this point? Can you just clarify this for us? No, this very likely was, was a very common debate tactic that they would use against individuals who affirm a resurrection, trying to put them on the spot and say, all right, here's the hypothetical scenario, there, here's this situation, and this is a tactic called absurdia ad absurdum, uh, uh, sorry, I messed it up. It's called reductio ad absurdum, a reduction to absurdity. It's, it's an argument to reduce a position to absurdity in an attempt to prove it false so that their claim would be proven true. We believe there is no resurrection. You believe there is. Well, look how absurd of a conclusion you have to go to if you believe in a resurrection. This can't possibly be the case. And so look at how they frame the question. They, oh, it, it, there's a man. Uh, his brother dies and leaves the wife. There's no children. So now the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, we have to understand what's going on there because that's a little bit that, to us that without that cultural understanding of what's going on there, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, right? Why does this man have to take his brother's wife? Why would that have to be a thing? Well, this is a practice called Leverite marriage. Leverite marriage was a provision of God for the people God had given instruction about how individuals who own property, how they would pass that property on down to their children. This is very important for the people of Israel to try to keep. The, the God has given them the land of Israel. He's, he's given them this land, and that land is to stay within the family. It's to be passed on from generation to generation within the family. And if that is to occur, if someone dies without having children to pass that on to, there becomes a danger of that land going into someone else's hands. That's, it doesn't stay in the family. And that is of a concern to the Lord as he, he has made this provision, therefore, to keep the land within the family. So what happens if a man dies? The provision was this concept of Leverite marriage. It addresses this. The man's brother was to marry his deceased brother's wife, and the first son that was born to them would be considered the brother's son. So it wouldn't be his own son. It would be considered legally speaking, an heir for his brother so that the land that his brother owned would be passed down to that child, and then every child that's born after that would then go to uh, this individual who married his brother's wife. Again, this is a practice that's pretty foreign to us, right? We, we, we don't practice this today. This is not something that, that's a part of, of our culture, a part of how we do things. But this was something that was very important for the Israelites to carry on to protect the family lineage to protect the inheritance of the lands. But that leads to the question that the Sadducees have. In the resurrection, if this, if this, this hypothetical scenario where you've got a man, he dies, and then seven brothers, and they all die one by one, none of them have any children, who gets her in the resurrection? 
Whose wife will she be? How do we figure this out, Lord? How does this work? And again, they don't believe in a resurrection. They don't believe in a resurrection. So this is really a hypothetical scenario trying to reduce the argument down to absurdity. Notice Jesus and how He replies. Well, before, before I get to that, actually, I just want to make an observation about this. Here we have these Sadducees. They're, they're not asking Jesus this question out of genuine desire to learn and to grow. They're scoffers in the midst of this. They mock the concept of a resurrection. This is, this is their common debate tactic when they're dealing with the Pharisees. They're saying, look how absurd your position is. And so they're scoffers, right? They, they are not individuals who are coming with, with humility before the Lord. They're not coming with a genuine interest to learn and to grow through this. They're coming to try to demonstrate the absurdity of this position. And so here they are, they're scoffers, and something about scoffers that they love, they're absurd hypotheticals. And I don't know if you've ever encountered individuals like this, and it's been my experience that this is the case. I don't know if you've ever heard questions like, oh, can God make a rock so big he can't lift it? A lot of times these, these, are, these are questions raised by skeptics who are, are trying to create a, this absurd hypothetical scenario to demonstrate a failing of logic within a biblical worldview. Like, oh yes, God is so great, God is all-powerful, He can do anything. Well, then can He, can he create a, a rock so big He can't lift it? It's a scoffing question. It's a mocking question. I once had an atheistic man ask me, oh, oh, you believe God created everything, Right? Yes, that's correct. Oh, well, then who created God? As if that was like the ultimate trump card in the question. He, he really thought he had me on that question. Everything, uh, that he, that everything that had been created, everything that exists has been created by someone, created by God. Well, then therefore, God exists. He must have been created by someone else. Well, then who created that thing? Who created that thing? And so on and so forth. And it goes all and on for eternity. And that's this absurd conclusion, reductio ad absurdum, a reduction to absurdity. They think it's a clever question, but the question really isn't that hard for believers if you have a biblical worldview and you know what the Word of God says. We believe in an eternal God, the uncaused cause, the uncreated Creator, right? That's part of what makes Him God is that He is eternal. He has never been created. He has always been the I am. Most of the time, people who use these kinds of objections to the Christian faith, they have two primary flaws in their reasoning, and it's the same flaws that the, Fer- the Sadducees had in this text today. They don't understand what the Scriptures actually speak, and they, don't un- and they, and they underestimate the power of God. They don't understand the Scriptures, and they underestimate the power of God. Look now how Jesus replies in verse 24. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you neither know, you, you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. Two points. You don't know the Scriptures. You don't know the power of God. And Jesus is going to address those two points in reverse order, starting with the power of God. Verse 25, he says, when, 
when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. So Jesus addresses this issue. The scoffers lack belief in the power of God. Jesus' response here, it answers that part of the problem. Right? They, they, they have this trouble in their understanding, in their reasoning, in their logic, because they don't understand the power of God. And how Jesus answers the question demonstrates the power of God. He sets them straight. So first of all, he says, there's no marriage in the afterlife. Right? That's, that's not how it is. Right, so although there's, there's lots of different faith groups out there, by the way, that teach different things about what life is like in the afterlife. Think of uh, the LDS church, the Mormons. They believe that, that you, you, the person that you're married to, if you get married in the temple, you're sealed for eternity in that way. And so you have your, your wife in the future, and then you, you populate all these spirit worlds and all this stuff. I'm not going to get into all that. There's a lot of crazy things in that theological system. But they believe in this. It's an integral part of their belief system about the afterlife. There's the Islamic people who believe that, that if you die, especially if you die engaged in a holy war, that you go into paradise and you have all these virgins that get to be part of, of your harem in the afterlife. Jesus says, nope, that's not how it is. That's not what the afterlife is like. The purpose of the Leverite marriage was to produce offspring. The whole purpose of that was so that children would be born for the sake of perpetuating the, the heritage of the family in the land. So Jesus is, is communicating to the Sadducees here, you know, there's no need for that in glory. Uh, there's no need for that in the resurrection in heaven. It's just not a need. There's no marriage relationship. There's no need for procreation. And so it's just not a necessity there. I just do want to note that some people have taken Jesus' words too far with this, where they say, well, you know, maybe this means that, that we won't know that we were even married in heaven. Maybe this means that, uh, that the, there will be no level of, of intimacy at all in heaven and, and, and all these things, and that's, that's, that's not what Jesus is teaching here. It doesn't mean that uh, you won't know one another in glory. You will still be you. I will still be me in heaven. That's will still be our individual people. We'll still know about different things, I believe. While there's no need for procreation in heaven, that does not mean that there will not be relational intimacy. It'll be different from what we have here on earth, but it'll be a glorious thing in glory. So we don't, we don't want to take Jesus' words and take them to erroneous conclusions. We don't want to take them too far beyond what He has said here. And also, Jesus is not teaching that we become angels. That's another faulty conclusion that some people come to. Oh, we're going to be like the angels. Uh, just This is last week I saw someone post uh, on, on Facebook. Uh, one of their family members had passed away, and they posted, Ah, oh, another angel has entered into heaven. Oh, so another person, he sprouted his angel wings and stuff like I'm sorry for your loss. I'm not, I'm not typing on there saying, oh, that's incorrect. Yeah, I'm, not, I'm not doing that. But, but there, that's not accurate theology. That's not what the Bible teaches. We do not become angels. Jesus did not say that we become angels. He said that we are like the angels in this particular way. We are not given in marriage. We do not take wives to ourselves. That is not something that occurs in glory. There's no marriage or procreation in heaven, and that is the way in which we are like angels in that manner. 
And so Jesus gives this reply, and, and this, is really such a, this is really such a great answer to the Sadducees because there's a sense in which Jesus, His response to them is basically, you don't think God can figure this out? you've created this hypothetical scenario where, where you've got these, these guys and, and each one of them has married this woman and they've all died and none of them had any children and there's all this issue and now you're trying to figure out, oh, whose wife will she be in the afterlife? You don't think God is powerful enough to handle this? No, God is so powerful that in the resurrection, life is, is so perfect, it's, it's so wonderful. Relational intimacy and the glory of God is, is so great that the marriage relationship is completely unnecessary. He is so able to so perfect the human body and so remove the effects of aging and decay from us so that our current, that our current bodies experience so that there is no need to reproduce, to carry on a lineage in glory. That's just not a necessity in heaven. And He is so able to sustain and to fulfill and to care for us that all the longings that we experience in this life for, for a godly spouse, that uh, will be completely satisfied in our great and awesome God. God's got this. He's powerful enough to handle what life is like in the resurrection and the relational element that goes on there. And I opened up that question about, okay, at the rapture, all those dead in Christ, how does that work? Again, it's the same thing. God's, God's powerful enough to handle that. These questions underestimate God's absolute power. And this was the Sadducees' most fundamental problem. This is what everything comes back to. They, they fail to grasp the power of God. I want to point out something about the structure of Jesus' answer to the Sadducees here. This is, I've got it up on the screen here. This is what is called a, a chiasm, or some people say a chiasm, or a chiastic structure, a chiastic structure. We've seen this before in the book of, of Mark. It's actually a literary device that Mark kind of leans into quite a bit. He uses this in different places. Uh, well, here we have this, Jesus opens his statement and he closes his statement by a with a declaration that they are mistaken. He says, is this not why you are wrong, why you are mistaken, why you are incorrect? And then he closes that with, you are quite wrong, you are quite mistaken, you are quite deceived. It could be translated in that way. He, cha he challenges them with, you do not understand the Scriptures, and in a moment we're going to see him teach them what the Scriptures say about the resurrection. How can we conclude that the resurrection is a biblical thing? And then in the center there, you underestimate God's power. Now, a chiastic structure is, is a literary device that's used to highlight particular information. This structure, it, it leads us into this main focal point to say that the center of the chiastic structure, the, the most rightward portion of the chiasm, that is the main thrust of the passage. That's the main thing that the author is trying to communicate. And here, it is about the power of God. The Sadducees lack an embracing of the power of God.
going to come back to that concept in a moment, but first we want to see the other portion of Jesus' response. If he dealt with the power of God issue and now they do not understand the Scriptures, scoffers often lack an understanding of God's Word. It's interesting, the Scriptures, actually the Old Testament Scriptures, speak of the resurrection in a handful of places. There are places in the Old Testament that speak of a resurrection. Most notably would be Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. It says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. That's a very clear passage that speaks of the concept of a resurrection from the dead. But again, the Sadducees, they do not embrace Daniel as being authoritative. They only believe the first five books of the Old Testament are authoritative. So Jesus, when He corrects their understanding, He appeals to a passage that they did embrace. He takes them back to Exodus chapter 3. Verse 26 says, as in, in Mark chapter 12, verse 26, As for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. When God revealed Himself to Moses and He said, I am the God of Abraham, I am the God of Isaac, I am the God of Jacob, He did not say, I was their God and now they're dead and now I am your God now. He said, I am your God. I am the God of, of these individuals. At the time that God talks with Moses, those guys have been dead for literally hundreds of years. How, that, how then can it be that God says, I am their God presently, now? Well, there has to be some form of resurrection, life that they are already experiencing at some level by these patriarchs, or else how else would God say, I am their God? God is God, not of the dead, but of the living. So Jesus seeks to expose this lack of understanding of the Scriptures on this point. They thought they knew the Scriptures. They thought that there was no proof of the resurrection even within the Old Testament Torah, the Pentateuch, those first five books. They thought that there was nothing there, but Jesus demonstrates that they were unable to make a key deduction from the words of God to Moses, that I am the God of Abraham. And even though Abraham is dead, yet he lives because of faith in the promises of God. Scoffers often lack a knowledge of what the Word of God actually says and teaches. So many try to make caricatures of the Word of God. They, they try to mock the Word of God in different ways and attempt to, to raise themselves up against the knowledge of God and against His Word. But God will not be mocked. His Word is true, and everyone else can be a liar, but God's Word is true. And His Word supplies the necessary answers to dealing with the skeptics and the scoffers alike. Just as an aside from an apologetic standpoint, I really love what Jesus does here. Jesus used the very Scriptures that they embraced. Jesus didn't appeal to other Scriptures, even though those other Scriptures were the Word of God. 
Jesus appealed to scriptures that they embraced. That that's can be a very powerful apologetic methodology. Think of the different individuals, different faith groups that are out there that have some level of embracing of the Scriptures. Think of our Jewish individuals. They embrace the Old Testament. We can show them how Jesus is the Messiah from the Old Testament. People of the Islamic faith, their Quran says that the Scriptures are true. We can demonstrate the truthfulness of the Scriptures, of, of the true Scriptures. LDS individuals, the Mormon people, the individuals, they, they, ha they have their Book of Mormon, but they also embrace the Bible. So we can open up the Bible and show them their error from their own Scriptures. That's just an aside from an apologetic standpoint. It's a very powerful, powerful thing. I do want to, I want to show us another neat thing about Mark chapter 12. I, I mentioned one chiastic structure. Mark tends to love these chiasms and a little bit of a chiasm within a chiasm here. Here's another chiastic structure of the, of the book, uh, the, chapter 12. And uh, I didn't come up with this structure, but there's an observation from another individual. We, we've been moving through chapter 12 and we have seen that there was a judgment of the, the parable of the wicked tenants that was spoken against uh, the religious people. And later on, towards the end of the chapter 12, we're going to see Jesus make a statement of warning against the scribes. In between that, there's psalm quotations. He's, he quotes from Psalm 18, and later on he's going to quote from Psalm 110. There's a legal discussion, a question about the law. Is it lawful to pay, pay taxes to Caesar? Oh, what is the greatest commandment? Questions about the law that are asked of Jesus, and then here in the center of it all, the question about the resurrection is really the central point. It's really the, the, the main issue, because right here, what's going on in this text where the Sadducees, they do not understand the Word of God nor the power of God, that issue there explains everything else of all else that's going on in the rest of the chapter. There are misunderstandings about the law. There are questions about these. There are attempt to trap Jesus. There are the issues and the words that Jesus brings against them and the warnings and the parable against them. It all comes back to this issue that they do not understand the Word of God nor the power of God. See, these religious leaders, they're debating him. They're asking him all these questions. They're trying to corner him. They're trying to trap him. But as Mark demonstrates with this structure, everything hinges on Jesus' words. You neither know the Scriptures nor the power of God. Or else they would not be trying to kill Jesus. Right? They don't understand the Scriptures, and that's why they're rejecting him as the Messiah. That's the reason why they're trying to kill Jesus, because they do not embrace who Jesus is. And this is the reason why they will receive judgment from the Lord, because they do not know the Word of God, and they do not know His power. If that's the problem, what is the solution to the issue at play? Of course, it very simply is to get into the Word. Just trust Almighty God. Many times there are examples in Scripture that are either for us to follow and to emulate and say, oh wow, look at this tremendous example of faith. 
Look at these individuals walking by faith and, and believing the Word of the Lord. But then there are other times where Scripture gives us examples of things that we do not want to follow, examples of things to avoid. And, and so many times, especially with the Pharisees, it's just like, you know, whatever it is that the Pharisees, the Sadducees, all these religious leaders are doing, whatever it is that they're doing, you just do the opposite because they are really walking far from what the Lord would have. You know, we sang that song earlier, Come Thou Fount, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. We can be so easily tempted by our own sin, tempted by the, the world, the flesh, the devil, tempted by all these things. And it can lead to a breeding of doubt within our own hearts about the Lord and about His power, about His, His kindness, about His love. All this doubt can be raised up within us that leads us away from the truth. The Sadducees here, they did not know the Word of God and they did not know the power of God. And those two things are connected. So I urge us, encourage us, that we would get to know the Word of God. And that in so doing, we would know the God of the Word. See the power of God on display. Bask in His power, bask in His glory. Delve into the richness of what God has said in His Word. Jesus demonstrated the truthfulness of the resurrection. From a passage that, in the passage itself, it's not about the resurrection, but there's an implication of truth there about God being a God of the living and not the dead. And in so many ways, this, this indictment of Christ against the Sadducees, it's, it's really, for a group that really prided themselves on their knowledge of the Word of God, it's a very damning indictment upon them. They failed to understand the Word that they held so dear. They, they, they failed to, 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 to have the eyes to see what God's Word taught. And as a result, they underestimated God's power. I pray that, that we would never make the same mistake, that you would never make the same mistake. There may be times when we are tempted to doubt God's power. We may doubt that He is able to accomplish His purposes. And when that doubt is creeping in, that's, that's a, a lack of faith. In the Word of God, it's either a failure to know what God has said or else a failure to believe what God has said. In either case, it comes back to the same thing that the Sadducees struggled with. They did not know, they did not believe. So I challenge us on this point today. Do you know what God has said in His Word? How God has taught us what it means to follow Him. Do you know what God has said? This is one of the reasons why we so heavily push and encourage personal engagement in the Scriptures so frequently. It's the Word of God that is, the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to shape us, to mold us. To, to, it's, it, the Word of God is sufficient to correct us, to teach us. The Word of God is, does all of these wonderful things, and so the, 
we need to know the Word. We need to believe His power. We need to embrace what God has said in His Word. And so I just encourage us with some exhortations today. Do you know what God's Word says? Do you know that it speaks of His great love for you? Do you know what Jesus did upon that cross for you? And do you know what happens when you trust in Jesus Christ and and receive Him? Do you know what it means to be adopted into the family of God, to be made a a co-heir of the kingdom of God? Co-heir with Christ. Do you know that the Spirit of God dwells within those who believe? And do you believe in the power of God to accomplish all of His good pleasure in and through you? One of Paul's prayers in the book of Ephesians was that we would know the power of God. Read the passage from Ephesians 1 where Paul prays. His prayer was that you would know what is the hope to which He has called you? And what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power in us who believe according to the working of His great might which He accomplished in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and made Him sit at His right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named? not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And He has put all things under His feet and made Him head over all things for the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. That's the power of God for you. Know it. Believe it. Father, I thank You for this time in Your Word today. Lord, the the main error of the Sadducees was a failure to know Your Word and a failure to know and embrace Your power. Lord, nothing is too difficult for You. Nothing is too hard for You. Nothing is too grand for You. You are able to accomplish all of Your good pleasure. Lord, I pray that we would be a people who know what you have said. That we would believe that you are almighty God. The God who is able. The God of great power. May we embrace this today. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen.